well, welcome to this series about the Australian Charter of Healthcare Rights and our series is entitled Patient Power, Healthcare Rights and Positive Change. And my name is Julie McCrossan. I'm a throat cancer survivor and a patient and family advocate. And this series is hosted by Health Consumers New South Wales and supported by the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare. Now, the Australian Charter of Healthcare Rights spells out our rights in relation to access, safety, respect, partnership, information, privacy, and giving feedback to improve healthcare. And essentially, this series is all about encouraging you to learn more about the Charter. I constantly carry my copy with me. I'm never without it. I sleep with it. So to learn more about the Charter and to use it to improve health services for you and your family, but also for the broader community. Now, this episode is about shared decision-making, and it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome four guests. I'd like to welcome from Brisbane, a mother of two, Christy Arfar, and Christy's late husband was treated for pancreatic cancer, and you've also supported Lay's parents when they received health services, and Lay and his family are members of the Pacific Islander community. So, fantastic you could join us today. Welcome also to Brad Rossiter, OAM. He's a health and wellness consumer representative from Batemans Bay on the south coast of New South Wales. Welcome, Brad. Welcome to Madison Shakespeare, a Gadigal woman from the Sydney region, an Indigenous Studies academic, a lawyer, and a member of a community advisory panel focusing on clinical trials. And Madison these days is based in Adelaide. And also with me in the studio, Dr Linda Trevina, a cancer survivor, a GP with over 30 years experience, currently working with asylum seekers, and Professor Emerita uh, in public health at the University of Sydney. Look, Linda, just to kick us off, shared decision-making, it, it's embedded in these rights in the Australian Charter. What does it mean? What gives us a, a definition? Thanks, Julie. Um... Look, shared decision-making is a process of discussing um, with your healthcare team um, the options available, uh, what are the benefits of those and, and the risks, and it's really important to factor in what's important to you so that we can make the best decision for your particular situation. Is your key message to everybody listening today, ask questions? Well, don't be frightened to ask questions. Doctors don't mind that. Um, and it's your right to ask the questions. It's your health and your body. What about uh, doctors are so short of time? You're, you've been a busy GP. What yeah. if you can feel your doctor wants to go to the next patient? Should you still ask questions? I think you should. I think you should. And look, you'll find that because the um, national standards and the um, healthcare rights are now considered to be good quality uh, healthcare, that it's expected that healthcare workers will do that. Yes, for people who are learning about these standards for the first time, this Charter of Healthcare Rights in Australia is part of the accreditation process uh, for health services, as you'll hear in one of our other episodes. Look, I want to welcome Christy Arfar uh, back from Brisbane. Christy, you, when I mailed you this uh, Australian Charter of Healthcare Rights, you hadn't seen it before, had you? What, what was your first reaction after going through the process of, of your late husband's cancer care and your in-laws as well? I was really excited, to be honest. Um, obviously, we've spent a lot of time in hospital over the last few years and trying to navigate 
um, how to even ask questions when you're just sort of coming to terms with a diagnosis or hearing things for the first time. It can be really, really overwhelming. Um, so even having this as sort of something to reflect upon while you're going into appointments um, really would give a lot of people a bit of more framework and, um, I guess, confidence to ask questions and to know what support's available to them. Could you give us one or two of the biggest challenges you face, perhaps with your husband, Lay, to begin with, when he got that unexpected cancer diagnosis? Yeah, so one of the biggest challenges, I think, for us um, sort of happened right off the bat. So his first, um, obviously, diagnosis with pancreatic cancer, we went with the first line of treatment because we didn't really ask questions. Cancer, especially pancreatic cancer and chemo, was very unknown to all of us. And um, we sort of just went with it. And he had a severe reaction, which nearly um, he was on life support and they didn't think he would recover. And so very quickly, we sort of learned um, to, ask about, to ask about risks, to ask about um, what options are available. And even though, um, you know, we trust our, our team, it's not necessarily asking questions because we have doubts. It's more to get that understanding of how is this going to affect our family and translating that to what do actually we value in receiving treatment? Because sometimes those things don't always align um, with the first line of treatment. Pacific Islander background is what I mentioned in terms of your husband and his mum and dad. Tell us about some of the particular cultural aspects, both with Lay, but also with your, your mother-in-law when she was very ill and in hospital. Yeah, there were a couple of barriers there, to be honest. Um, obviously, language um, with my in-laws was a very difficult one because English was not their first language. So trying to interpret and translate information for them was really difficult and trying to know what support was available was hard. Um, and with Lay as well, trying to integrate in natural therapies with Western medicine and knowing and sort of having our team on side was a really difficult thing to navigate, to be honest. And and um, I think the charter was would definitely be something that's really beneficial to patients and, and even advocates because it just gives you that sense of it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to sort of voice um, what what is most important to us and, and quality of life. And I guess, you know, shared decision-making is the theme of this episode in our series. Implicit in these rights is that we can have with us in the room with the doctor or other clinicians, the people we want, and that we are making the decisions in partnership with them. I understand there were some cultural values that were a bit hard. For example, I think when your mother-in-law was was dying, uh, you had some issues around the, the, the level of sedation to reduce her stress. Yeah, so um, obviously going through palliative care with Lay, we were very familiar with, um, I guess, end-of-life medications and, and how you can support someone through that. And, um, you know, Pacific Island culture, death is just very um, open and it's embraced. And one of the key things for um, our family was to make sure that mum was comfortable but also present as much as possible. And we did have a few instances where nurses, we, you know, we were commenting on, what's been happening and the changes and we were monitoring her and their first thing was, oh, we'll sedate her and don't worry and that kind of thing. And we sort of had to really um, advocate, I guess you'd say, to sort of say, no, that's not what we want. And because we did stand up for those things and ask those questions and sort of stand up for what it was most important to our family, we got two more moments where mum was sort of awake and we got to be alert and, um, and say our final words with her, which was something so special. But had we not have had the confidence to do that 
off the back of our previous experience, we would have missed those opportunities. And and that's just, again, something culturally not everyone embraces, but it's finding what best sits with you and your family and being okay to voice that. Yes, you were able to get a less heavy sedation that meant the world to you. Uh, just staying with this cultural theme for a moment, I just want to ask Dr Lyndall Trevena again, our GP, but who's also done, uh, you do work with the Agency for Clinical Innovation and in developing resources to help people be involved in shared decision-making. Just before we meet our First Nations person on the panel, tell us about finding your way. Uh, just in a nutshell, what, what is that resource that you've helped to make? Finding your way uh, came as an idea from um, an Aboriginal man who had had experience in um, heart, heart problems and uh, became very passionate about shared decision making but he felt that the current models um, that were out there uh, weren't necessarily um, adaptable or useful or culturally safe for um, First Nations, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, Australians. So so we developed, um, we used the eight ways of Aboriginal learning to adapt shared decision making into a, a new culturally safe model, which includes things like it's circular, it includes a lot of symbols, it addresses um, cultural aspects like connection to land and community and family, and, um, and, and allows the Aboriginal person to drive find your way, drive their way through the decision journey. Um, and it was actually developed in collaboration with hundreds of Aboriginal people who um, they call it, you know, shared decision making, but with mob, um, by mob, for mob. And so, we'll put a link yeah. uh, to this on the website I'll be giving you at the end uh, of our first episode on this topic. Uh, and there'll be lots of other links there. If you've just joined us, by the way, this is all about shared decision making. And we're promoting the Australian Charter of Healthcare Rights as a, a tool that patients and family and all the clinicians can use to try and uh, hear the voice of patients and get them involved in decisions. Let me welcome now Madison Shakespeare, as I said, a Gadigal woman uh, from the Sydney region, a lawyer, uh, and you're involved with the uh, community advisory panel with the Gastrointestinal Cancer Clinical Trials Group. Uh, this document, the healthcare rights, I, I get the sense you think it's useful, but the need is there to adapt it to the needs of local First Nations communities, which are going to be very varied. Could you explain why that adaption by people themselves is critical? Indeed, thank you so much, Julie, and, and all of my co-panel members. And can I also at this point acknowledge traditional owners of the nation countries from which we're actually calling in from um, and thank this, all of you for this opportunity to facilitate more ways in which we as First Nations can realise self-determination because that's what I see, uh, you know, sort of underpinning this charter. But how we realise, how we as individuals, but then also how we as communities, cultural communities realise self-determination can look very different, yeah, across different communities. And I think that specificity is really necessary. And that goes to your question of, you know, why would, for instance, place-based specific practice be so necessary? Because when considering First Nations communities across Australia, we're looking very, very different um, circumstances, not just geographical, you know, differences, but we're looking at Australia was a, a many-nationed, multi-nationed country well before invasion, colonisation. And with 
the prolific number of dialects, the different dialects, yeah, First Nations languages, then there needs to be a deeper understanding of the need for specific practice, particularly in current healthcare contexts. And can, can I just, I'm going to reflect on a question that you asked, Christy, and that you asked if she was aware of the Charter. And I, I'm also going to say that I, I wasn't aware of the Charter, which worries me actually because <laughs> I work in aspects of um, policy investigation and development at one of one of my universities at Flinders University and I look at this charter and I think that it actually has incredible potential to enact meaningful systemic changes uh, for all patients uh, across different you know different types of healthcare um, you know, sort of provisions and and I think the fact that hospitals, for instance, need to agree to the terms in this charter and the standards so that they actually have that accreditation, I think that that holds potentially very positive uh, ways to enact change. What does worry me in many respects is how, how are we going to have the terms, which are great terms within it, construed, understood for First Nations peoples? Look, can I come to that specifically? Uh, because my understanding is the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality and Healthcare, as you know, are supporting this series. And might I acknowledge that I'm on the land of the Gadigal people today and apologise that I did not begin our session today with that acknowledgement. Um, but the Commission is currently partnering, as I understand it, in the Top End region in the Northern Territory to create a culturally safe animation about the Charter with plans to have a translation in six community languages. And I think you've had a chance to look at the finding your way. I mean, is the, it's the reality that we just have to keep working with Aboriginal people working in health, Aboriginal health services, but also mainstream health services to build relationships with local Aboriginal health services and create local resources and it's just you, you can't rush it is that is that the bedrock yes and no humbly uh, we can't rush it but at the same time I feel that there's not a two-way relationship partnership and in fact the charter speaks of partnerships the standards speak of partnerships and I don't honestly think that those partnerships are being realized to their full potential so yes Madison can you just give me in a nutshell your key concern about current resources and the, your recommendations for action so that the resources that would be good for First Nations people can be developed in partnership in a nutshell Let's look at a strength-based approach. If we can seek to implement uh, cultural safety frameworks across hospitals who agree to be part and of, of the Charter, then I think that's a good start. Um, and then we also need resources that are developed in collaboration with, and if possible, uh, First Nation-led uh, consultation that you know, that that support the cultural and spiritual ideologies and practices of First Nations peoples. So, for instance, the app that we've just yarned about, that's a fantastic app because it employs 
um, aspects by the sound of things of, of Tyson Young Kapoor's eight ways of learning and realizing healthcare solutions through practical processes that are relevant to First Nations people, that's the way to go forward. So the finding your way, culturally safe model shared decision-making that uh, Professor Lyndall Trevina mentioned is an example of what you think is good work and we're going to link that to our webpage with all our resources and so on. That work that's happening up in the Northern Territory is a benefit. But you're working, as I understand it, in three universities, you're, you're doing Indigenous studies. Do we need more partnerships with the universities and institutions who are training our health professionals to get this knowledge of the Charter of Patient and Family Rights and the need to partner with First Nations people when people are actually training? Absolutely. So education for our clinicians coming out, that that's imperative. I'd also recommend that there is ongoing mandatory accreditation um, for professionals who are actually working as clinicians out in healthcare. And, and so basically having ongoing annual professional training in cultural competencies. So that could be really solid. But there's another strategic reason for involving Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander-led, for instance, uh, public health uh, specialists in research teams at universities. They are at the forefront with community engagement. So place-based specific knowledges and practices go to the university within a particular state, they will be working with your First Nation stakeholders. Mm. So you've got the specificity of adaption of the charter that you want to see. Look, thank you, Madison. I want to welcome now uh, our final guest, Brad Rossiter, OAM, uh, a health and wellness consumer representative from Batemans Bay on the far south coast of New South Wales. Brad, you've been listening intently, I'm sure. Just to begin, Brad, in a nutshell, what is your medical history? It's remarkable. So you you, you inform our audience, please. Uh, Julie, thank you very much. Um, medical history. Uh, in 1970, I was diagnosed with juvenile onset type 1 diabetes. Uh, I grew up in Sydney and um, youngest of three boys. And grew up, you know, um, back in those days, of course, we had um, one really big needle uh, and it was done in the morning for insulin. Uh, there was no home blood glucose monitoring. It was um, a wee test twice a day and told to get it side and play. That was about how we, how we went. Mo- monitored very closely by my endocrinologist um, and through to there. Growing up into adolescence and um, played plenty of sport and things like that as well. Living in the Sutherland Shire, uh, had, a, had a good, healthy lifestyle. By trade, took a job as a butcher and um, then uh, worked through being a butcher uh, up until 2000, year 2000, where um, just prior to that, uh, I showed some signs of kidney trouble and some vision trouble as well. And in the year 2000, I was diagnosed with end-stage renal failure and stardialysis, and also in the same year, I was diagnosed being legally blind through to, through diabetic retinopathy, uh, having had over 6,000 laser shots on each eye to try and stem the flow of the, uh, the, the hemorrhage, burst, hemorrhage bursting, and um, sorry, the, the retina bursting. Um, we, we find ourselves in a position where it, it did, do, did work. Um, I started dialysis, in the, as I say, in the year 2000, and went on then to um, have dialysis for seven years and received a kidney and pancreas transplant in 2007. Um, in 2002, I had my left leg amputated 
and in 2008 had my right leg amputated. Brad, uh, you've got what's called an undeniable deep engagement with the health system and it's amazing you're grinning. Look, in the limited time we have left, I want to get your sense of this charter and, and my understanding is you think documents like the Australian Charter of Healthcare Rights are critical, we need to have them, but for the patient making critical serious decisions, there's no substitute for face-to-face -face contact with peers. Can you explain that, please? Correct, for sure. Look, the best thing, what we've done for for, for entire, since 1970, I guess, with mum and dad and then now married my wife, Lorraine and I, and our son, Trent, we've engaged and spoken to people about all these things as well. But when you're first diagnosed with something that you're not quite sure what it is or after you've been diagnosed with something and you, you, you move forward, once you become, as a patient and consumer and your family does as well, educated, and education is what we all are striving for, I guess, in the whole thing, you then feel more confident to actually ask the clinicians and the doctors and nurses and medical people, what is it? Why am I having this done? What's it all about? And you need to get that confidence. If you can't do it yourself, have a support person or a carer with you or a family member who can do that for you because it's really very important. Shared decision-making, it's my body, my decision. And you you think that when you first get a serious diagnosis, almost like walls come down in your head and you can barely think. That's why I think you value your wife and your family so much in their support. What if someone feels, I'm too frightened to ask questions or I don't want to know, you make the question, you, you make the decision, doctor. What would you say to that person? Um, in, uh, in 2007, after I served my kidney and pancreas transplant down here in the south coast of Bowman's Bay, we had no support groups at all for people with kidney, kidney problems or, or diabetic, diabetic issues. There was not any support group here, but people had renal problems, nothing. So we, we created the Uberdala Renal Support Group and Organ Donor Awareness Group, support group. And from that point in time, we've spoken to people in various situations, in shopping centres, at fates, at, at school functions, at just on the internet, uh, on, on Facebook, giving them an idea of the, look, there are people out there that give you a bit of a, it's not medical advice, of course it can't be because I'm not medically trained, but it's certainly human experience and the journey uh, which helps people understand more that it's out there to find out what's going on and um, probably shouldn't say, but um, Dr Google hangs around pretty good too, so, so he's got, you know, he knows some stuff. So yeah, anyway. I have to say when I had stage four throat cancer, I, uh, I asked my doctor to tell me which uh, websites to go to because I'm afraid there was so much out there was frightening with my cancer. So I think my own thought is you get directed. But look, just before I, I lose you, you're clearly committed to communication. You with the Southern New South Wales Local Health District Community Representative Committee uh, have got involved in getting a new hospital in Maruya. But the thing I want to mention is you've got an annual community expo at Batemans Bay where you get up to 3,000 people and 45 exhibitors. Is, is your bottom line talk to people and get to know your condition, or it's very hard to be a shared decision-maker. Correct. And that's spot on. Get to know what it's all about. Our, our expo brings together a, a great group of people who are um, providers of services, and it's very wide and very open. There's no boxing of medical stuff only. There's dance groups come along because ultimately uh, if it makes you feel good, why not do it? So it's, uh, that's about shared decision-making on being, being involved and being being part of a community that can you can talk to people you don't know, people you know, have a yarn about this, have a yarn about that. It really makes a big difference in, in, in all aspects of your life and you understand that there are people out there who can support you 
and you know, maybe just maybe just a nod the street sometimes or say get on the street and here you go. Um, helps heaps too, so it doesn't have to be yes. a formal meeting. There's nothing like the, co- the companionship, is there? Look, a, a final word from you, if I may, Lyndall Trevena, our experienced general practitioner. What's your recommendation to any health professionals who are listening to this who think COVID is still with us, we're under pressure, how can I take on making sure my patients and their family know about these rights? How can I take on one more burden? In a nutshell, what's your message to them? Well, um, I think that, you know, displaying it clearly in your clinic um, is a good start. And I have seen myself examples of that. But then, of course, there have been many other places I've been to and I haven't seen these. And our guests today have confirmed that they, you know, didn't know much about the rights either. Um, I think uh, a couple of points I'd like to clarify for the health professionals who might be tuning into this and, and also to the consumers Shared decision-making, as, as Brad suggested, is not really about um, de- devolving the um, decision completely onto the shoulders of a very sick patient. It's a partnership. It's an equal partnership and a discussion between the healthcare team and the, and the patient, but it may also involve their family. Um, and sometimes people are too sick to take on the burden of making the decision themselves, and that's okay. So you just need to be, as part of shared decision-making, tell your healthcare team how much involvement you'd like to have in the decision. Say, look, oh, it's too much for me, but can I get my wife or my husband involved? Or that is an important part of shared decision-making. And, uh, and I think um, sometimes people uh, get the wrong idea and think that it, it, it's about dropping the decision onto the sick patient, but that's not true. It's a partnership. Absolutely. Look, thank you so much. And I really want to thank all our guests for starting this conversation. And I want to thank you for joining us uh, and listening. If you want more information and resources about the Australian Charter of Healthcare Rights, you can go to Health Consumers New South Wales website, www.hcnsw.org.au. And you'll also see there the information about all our guests and all our episodes and lots of resources, including uh, for First Nations people. My name's Julia McCross and it's been a pleasure to be with you and join us for our next episode. Thank you.